Welcome to allthingsnew.tech, where we are exploring the intersection of theology and technology. Technology is changing our jobs, relationships, and even our identities. It's easy to get excited about all the new things, but as Christians, we also believe that God is redeeming this world through His effort, making all things new. Today, Paul Taylor from All Things New is talking with Tim Berglund, the Senior Director of Developer Experience at Confluent. They provide a streaming platform based on Apache Kafka, which gives companies an easy way to implement data as real-time event streams. Paul and Tim will be talking about how models of data have shaped how we think of our humanity. Do we exist, or do things just happen to us? And how does the technology we build and use shape the way we think of ourselves and God? We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, I'm Paul Taylor here with allthingsnew.tech, and today I'm talking with Tim Berglund, who is the Senior Director of Developer Experience at Confluent. Confluent is a company that enables a streaming platform based on Kafka, which provides companies an easy way to implement data as real-time event streams. Tim runs developer relations for Confluent, so he's basically trying to organize a community of people who are using and extending Confluent in order to improve everybody's experience and gather them together. I was introduced to Tim by a mutual friend, and I think we're going to have an interesting conversation about data and technology and truth and humanity and all sorts of trivial matters. So Tim, why don't you just kick things off, kind of tell us your story. I always like to find out how people got interested in technology in the first place. I think that's really indicative of why technology appeals to us. Totally, totally. And thanks for the intro. I I would say that all sounds like uh, one trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. So, All right, I like that. um, I got interested, when did I get interested in technology? Okay, so... um, Let's go set the Wayback Machine to about 1980. I'm I'm eight years old-ish, and I became interested in electronics. I actually have no memory of how, uh, but I did, and I got me a soldering iron and saved up money and begged my mom for money to go buy components at Radio Shack and made little circuits according to you know uh, instructions I downloaded from the web. No, actually, (laughs) from things there was no there was none. So you had to find. There must have been instructions in the box. That's that's my guess. Yeah. Um, Yes. So I kind of I did that for uh, yeah actually for for a number of years. I was never very successful at it. I I burned myself with soldering iron a lot, but most of the the projects I made didn't work. But then in in fifth grade, um, your listeners will remember the Scholastic Book Club little newsprint. Yes. folded piece of newsprint with the books on it. And you Ordering your check books. The box. I assume it's Definitely. an app now. I, I want to believe it's an app. I need to ask somebody with, Probably. with school-age kids. Yeah. But it was it was newsprint, and there was a book on basic programming, and that just sounded uh. like the most amazing thing ever. Um, this would have been in the fall of 1982, and I, I ordered that book, and it came in on book club day, and I read a book on programming with no computer to enter the programs into sort of like Ada Lovelace, except uh, not Victorian. Why do you think it appealed to you? I mean, as a kid, you said you didn't even have a computer. What, what about the idea of programming? You heard you to it. I see. I don't know. That's that's a thing. I, I I can give no account of why. It just was self-evidently the most awesome thing you could do. 
Um, yeah, you just didn't even have to. No, I didn't. Like, this is my thing. And uh, my parents got me a Commodore VIC 20 for Christmas that year uh-huh. and basically never looked back. There were, you know, a few upgrades from then till I started college. Uh, but um, that was, well, that was oh, what I did. So. I occasionally would do electronics projects and, and then I'd write code in basic and then 8086 assembly language and then later on C on an Amiga yeah. 500. Um, and that, that was just like, you know, what else, what else would you do with your time? Yeah. I mean, that was, that was cool, right? That was what, that was what drew you. Well, you know, the, the company you work with now is all about data and it's a new kind of managing data of understanding data kind of, as I understand it, seeing data more as a sequence of events rather than a static store of information. Yeah. And yeah. So back, is that a good way for people to understand it? And, and um, you know, if we kind of, in terms of, of my story of how I got started, if we, if we merge these two timelines back yeah. when I was that still somewhat socially awkward boy, uh, although growing out of it, um, in, <laughs> which you've completely grown out of it now, I'm sure in his, I, you know, I, I tell myself, um, right. in his bedroom with the Amiga 500 and the lattice C compiler and the Kernigan and Ritchie white book learning C, uh, in the late eighties, um, and also dating a girl that would later become my wife, um, that around that time. And then into college, uh, in the, in the early nineties for me, there was a revolution happening in, uh, information storage and retrieval. And that was the, the relational database revolution. Yeah. Um, and that those were, that, that was the disruptive technology at the time that was, you know, this new way of, of making uh, you know, smaller open systems. You didn't have to have a mini computer or a mainframe. You could have these small systems and build department size applications. And it was this really great way of structuring data. Uh, and basically the, the analogy is, um, if, I mean, if you're a person in tech, you, you know what a relational database is. If you don't, um, uh, a, the basic model is like a spreadsheet. You know, you, ha- you have like a, right. a, a, a set of rows and columns and the columns are, you know, have names and the rows, each row is a record of data. And you have a bunch of those in this, this relational database. And like a spreadsheet, it's, it's, it's got coordinates, right? There's a place where you go and you change a thing. And that thing there reflects the state of the world. That's what the amount where to find everything. Exactly. That's the amount of this. Finding one thing leads you to find something else. That's the name of this person and, and so forth. And that paradigm became absolutely dominant. Uh, 15 years ago, if I said database, you didn't even say relational. It's just what database right. meant, right? It became such a successful transformation that that was the thing. And now streaming, which is the, the stuff Confluent does and, and Kafka, Apache Kafka is an open source project. That's kind of the, the core of what we do. This is more a way of saying, well, look, things happen in the world and the, the world, we, what we fundamentally want to model is not what things are, What's, we don't want to think necessarily first about what's the state of things. What's my name? What's my zip code? Uh, has this order shipped or is it still pending? You know, we want to think of the world as a sequence of events. And so our software is a, is a means of storing and organizing and integrating and doing computations over streams of events. 
So um, it is a, a very different way of looking at the world. Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen, right? Maybe 20 years from now. Uh, right. That will, that will Whether be, it's the new revolution uh, or a fad. You know, the, the kids who are uh, uh, just discovering software for the first time right now, you know, will look back on the early part of their career and think, oh, yeah, this is this is all I ever built was just event streams. Um, in any yeah. case, it's certainly a, a pretty successful paradigm that's solving interesting problems and, and getting a lot of uptake. So just, I think there's a lot of really fascinating implications, both theological and in terms of our humanity by understanding um, data in those two different paradigms. But before we kind of get to the implications, why, from a real world perspective, why is, why is it better why is it better at solving certain kinds of problems, this kind of streaming model versus the database model? Gotcha, gotcha. Um, this gets somewhat technical, and I, you're going to have, uh, you know, your, your listeners will inhabit uh, different... A wide range of, uh, of backgrounds. Yeah, broad range of backgrounds, yeah. not like not yeah. all software people, not all this kind of software. So um, I'll, I'll, um, I'll summarize. Yeah. And so if you're like a, you know, an enterprise data infrastructure person and you're frustrated with how high level I'm being, that's why, okay? It's not all us. That's why. But Fair enough. Um, the, the, there are two things. Number one, um, it's, it's, this is a little bit of a cliche, but you know, devices, mobile devices have given us the expectation that we get results right now. Um, mm. I can look at the device and I can, I can know what's happening in the world right now. Or even worse, the device gives me a notification. Or even worse, my watch which is paired to my device, gives me a notification. And so I'm just being constantly stimulated with the current status of things. And those could be right. you know, various commercial relationships I have with entities. I know, oh, I got a little wiggle on my wrist. That order has shipped. Yep. Um, and so devices have given us the expectation that we know things right away, which means that the people who write those programs now need infrastructure for managing their data that is kind of shaped in a way that lends itself to that real-time uh, computation. Event-based. Yeah, yeah. Things. And so the thing right. that, that uses events as its view of the world is naturally going to be better at that. It's a little bit of a straw man because you can build small event-based systems using update-in-place relational, databa relational databases sure. or other data, you know, other data storage systems like that. But you, know, you want a tool that's shaped like the problem you're having. So... On the one hand, it's it's um, real time stuff. The other one has to do with um, a software development, I say software architecture megatrend called microservices. And just super briefly, that's where you take a big program and you break it up into a bunch of little programs, uh, where where the big program is too big to fit into any one human's mind. No, nobody can completely think about the whole thing, reason about the whole right. thing. But you break it up into pieces that an individual developer can think about each piece. And it turns out that to then to reconnect those pieces, um, connecting them using this event paradigm has turned out to be the most successful and flexible way of doing that. So it's like they're- Because you don't have these multiple little things. people overwriting and rewriting and yeah, accessing data. Yeah, yeah, Sharing mutable right. state is a massive bummer in a lot of ways. So if they are basically these little programs sending events back and forth to each other, um, you can get all kinds of cool things happening in your architecture. So th those are the two real, I think, drivers for why people care about event streaming. Yeah, that's, that, that's helpful. 
So then if we jump into some of the questions I think that are interesting to consider about knowledge yeah. and you know how we conceive of what we know and who we know and how we do things and so you know to summarize what you've been saying there used to be this technical understanding of data as what things are and you had a model to store what was or existed and now there's this what things happen or what occurs and it strikes me that that's going to change the way we think about ourselves. I mean, already we have imported the idea of our brains as databases, and we have the ability to access information we have um, from a human level. And then we, we, we can get to what does it say about God, but just starting from a human level, how does that, does that change the way I think about myself as something that is versus something that happens? Right, right. Like, what what is the anthropology that develops? Because, like you said, um, computation and kind of the, what is now a ubiquitous language of computation. Um, it turns out, you know, when I was 10 and learning how to program, everybody knew what a computer was, uh, but hardly anyone had one. And all that, right. there was this weird thing, you know, like, oh yeah, war games, that kid had the computer. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a kind of a strange priestly class. Yeah. But this is ubiquitous language now, and it has absolutely driven our anthropology. We use all right. kinds of computational language to think about the human mind, which is probably a super bad idea, but we do it. And so what is this event paradigm going to do to us now? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I have bandwidth now, but I didn't have bandwidth yeah. a generation ago, yeah. you know, and my, I've exceeded my bandwidth or I have some extra bandwidth, but that just that way of talking about myself didn't exist. And so how does this change yeah. the way we talk you, about you ourselves? You ping your friends. I mean, that's a, that's, that's right. a, uh, uh, old, that's a TCP IP network connectivity test. Yeah, uh, exactly. So yeah, it's I and my the short answer is I don't know because this is you know, I think going to be a very successful uh information storage and retrieval paradigm. I, I think it's it's going to leave a lasting mark on the way people build systems, but it might only affect uh the plumbers. And let me let me describe what I mean by that. Right. It is plumbing, and you know if you, if you if you look at some some detailed categories that exist inside relational databases, um, you know you, you do think like database is a, a you know kind of a, a common term and it has sort of affected the way we think of our memory and our account of yeah, ourselves. People basically understand what it means. Yeah, we do, we do. But you know, you never talk about an upsert. Or you know you don't say well let me let me join that uh, thing sure. to this those are you know right. sort of specific relational database terms those those don't make it into the parlance just because they're too detailed right and if you do talk about outer joins and inner joins at a party that you know you're probably not going to be invited back yeah so. well it depends on the party it depends on the party it depends on the party yeah, around here might. maybe the, you know that that might just fly exactly. in Silicon there are parties that gets me invited too but <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Not sure you want to be invited to those parties, yeah. but no, they're great. They're great. <laughs> um, but it, it, that, that said, um, the the plumbers, and by that I mean you know the the people who are using this infrastructure, because um, right. plumbing is a good is a good analogy there. This is data infrastructure we're talking about, and um, data moves around in it just like just like water and certain other things move around in plumbing, and. Um, as a homeowner, like like everybody in in the developed world and in a lot of the developing world, 
is a user of plumbing. Um, and most people don't know much about plumbing. And if you have to know something about plumbing, it's because something has gone very, very wrong. Right. And you'd rather not know much about plumbing. You'd rather not. Yeah. But plumbers gotta. And so that's, yeah. that's kind of the community that I work with is the people who, who work with the plumbing. And I think it, it does have the potential both to affect how they look at the world. And I think this paradigm shift, um, kind of goes with the wood grain of some philosophical changes that have been happening going on for a long time. And I, so I think, sure. I think there is a thing here. It's maybe not a huge thing and maybe it doesn't affect a lot of people, but it's, it's interesting. And it's, it's, it's kind of gnawed at me in the last two years that I've been working with this technology that there's this little thing and I'm not sure I like it, but it's worth talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think about my own life and, think about the sequence of events that happen. And, you know, I think we probably consider ourselves as a combination of, you know, there is a me, then things happen to me. But if there is no me, there is only the things that happen. It seems like something is lost there. Right, right. Something profound. So let's, let me, yeah. this is, and this is, let me just talk about it a little bit because I, I think yeah. it's interesting. And I, I'm going to be using some philosophical language and I want to stress ahead of time because uh, I'm sure you have listeners who have formal training. I don't have a whole lot of formal training. I'm, I'm kind of a, a well-read lay person. So I'll be speaking in generalities. Um, but the um, this reminds me of the uh, the realism-nominalism debate, the right. um, event streaming uh, database debate. So, uh, very briefly, the realism nominalism debate, uh, originally had to do with, uh, what we call universals, you know, like there's an object and it has properties. There's a ball and it's red and it's round, um, and it's bouncy. And there's right. another ball over there that's also red. Um, and philosophers have tried to account for how it is that that same property redness occurs in two different objects because nobody really disagrees, at least in the West, that the two balls are different things. Right. Um, and that now we have to come up with an account of how it is that they're both red. And so a realist says, well, redness is a thing. It's not a physical thing. The ball is a physical thing. Uh, it's an abstract thing. Red, redness is an abstract object and it exists. Uh, and it's just as real as the concrete or the, the material object. It's just non-material. Um, that that uh, began in the uh, with with Plato and Aristotle. They were the you know the first people to put realism on the map in an interesting way. So it's you know it, it predates the Christian philosophical tradition. But the Christian philosophical tradition was quite comfortable with this because the idea of non-material objects is a thing that we have an a priori commitment to. Right. Right. Um, we believe ultimate reality is, you know, a non is is a non corporeal uh, triune spirit, and so, in fact, perhaps more real than than material reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least, at least, uh, was before there was uh, the yeah. the contingent uh, material creation. So, like, that's fine, and the bulk of the Christian tradition has pretty been pretty comfortable with that. But um, then you had a guy like um, uh, who would be the first. Uh, nominalist of note, uh, Occam, William of Occam, famous for Occam's razor. Um, 
William of Ockham was uh, a nominalist, and he said that redness is just a description of a, a state of mind, a psychological state. Um, you perceive that thing the same way, and you give it a label, um, but there isn't a thing. There isn't a red thing out there. Um, and that has developed in, you know, in the 20th century, um, where you get a guy like um, the best, uh, blanking on his name, Quine, W.V.O. Quine would be like the the poster child for radical nominalism in the 20th century, um, where to him, there's there's minds, you know, you have a mind and sense impressions impinge on that mind. So like you, you, you become aware of things and, you know, stop me if this doesn't sound like the tech we were talking about a minute ago. Right. It's no, just I this event stream, you know? Right. That's right. <laughs> there's just a stream of events happening. Like there's no things. Yeah. That's you relational database. People are worried it. about an entity. And, and if right. you look at the, the development process for the technology, when you start building a system with a relational database, you create a thing called an entity model. There's this, you know, you make an entity right. relationship diagram. You think about things. And here in the Kafka world, we think about events, like what is happening. And so there's this very nominalist kind of slant to it. Um, and like most people, even most software developers aren't particularly aware of the realism nominalism debate. You kind of have to sure. care about philosophy. But if, if you just go find Mr. or Mrs. Rando developer and say, Hey, I was just on this podcast and I was talking about realism and nominalism, and you describe both the positions. Um, 95% of the people that you talk to will take it as self-evident that nominalism is true. Hmm. And realism is, sounds medieval and quaint and like what is an angel taking the redness and putting it in the ball? Is that what you're going to tell me next? You know, it's just, it's not in terms of a contemporary plausibility structure. It just doesn't fly, right? It's right. not, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have a lot of currency. So then people have already made that shift. You're suggesting that people already view the world as a sequence of events rather than as a collection of objects yes. or entities. That, yes, that, that account characteristics. Of, of my experience as a person is much more plausible to just a person who has grown up in the world and breathed the air and watched the Game of Thrones and you know whatever it is that you do culturally to arrive at your position as an adult having the conversation for the first time about realism and nominalism, nominalism is obviously true and realism is obviously false. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's in the air. And that's a compelling suggestion. So you think most people you interact with don't think of themselves as existing or as being, um, but they just happen. Yeah, they, well, that's... I mean, that's maybe a little bit of a of pushing it to the extreme. Yeah, and, and that's that's where we get into the the uh, counterintuitiveness of nominalism is, yeah. you know, the, in its radical form, th there isn't even a world out there. You're just, you might as well be a brain in a vat and, you know, things are happening to you. Um, and and most people don't go that far. And most people, if you press them, think, no, I I, I exist, and I'm the I same exist. person who existed a year ago, even though I can't give a persuasive material account of why that would be true, right? Uh, you know, physicalist account of why that would be true. So you know, it, we have these intuitions about things. Like I, my dog, I've had for six years. It's the same dog, and you know, this this 
uh, journal I've been writing in, it's, it's the same journal and, um, it's the same color as the last journal I had. And we say things like that and we have these intuitions that are realist, but once you describe the positions, it, it, you know, it's, it's not a philosophically current idea. Yeah. So it's kind of bugged me, right? Cause I'm, should be clear at this point, just with the language I'm using, I think realism is, uh, a better account of reality. It's probably the better recommended position for Christians. There aren't very many nominalist Christian philosophers. And it's one of those things where uh, there are probably some other things that are going to go south. If you, if you go that way, it'll probably pull you into philosophical directions you, uh, that, that, that may or may not be consistent with your commitment to orthodoxy. It's not right. like it's heresy. Okay. There's no creed that requires this. It's just one of those things. Most Christian philosophers are realists for good reason. So it bugs me. And the funny thing is, is that even though, and, and I'm all in on this event streaming paradigm, like from a, from a tech perspective, I think it's, it's definitely the right way to build systems given the problems that we're solving right now. But right. the funny thing is the current problems. that entities don't go away. Uh, like these other tools have evolved around this basic event logging infrastructure to, for example, manage the schemas. Confluent has a thing called the Confluent Schema Registry. So, you know, what's the format of an event? Well, let's make sure all of the events in this topic have the same format. And if the format changes, let's make sure it changes in a predictable and compatible way. That's a really important tool, right? Well, but then that becomes an entity that exists. Yeah. Why would that not happen if there weren't a thing out there or like we have the stream processing frame or a couple of different stream processing frameworks that uh have abstractions in them specifically to model entities so they're always kind of popping back up and not just winking at you but really you know elbowing you in the side and saying hey uh you know events are interesting and events are very real things happen but there's still a world out there yeah so this is all very philosophical. How do you think this affects day-to-day -day life of people? I mean, if oh, we- Oh man, it's, I've seen it. It's huge. Yeah. Tell me some examples. If we start thinking of ourselves as events disconnected from some type of entity. Yeah, with no continuous identity over time, or if there, if there, so then there's if no there are no things, there are only experienced properties, then we're gonna have trouble um, like the category of human being becomes fraught, right? It's a, it's a cluster of properties and properties are just things you observe that are apparently there. So, uh, it's not really clear then what a human being is. And so you get into some bioethical questions that, you know, if there's an incapacitated person with human deer, you know, uh, biological entity with human DNA in it, but um, it's incapacitated or it's incompletely developed. Um, you know, is that really a human? It doesn't, it's not like acting like a human right now. There isn't any humanness that could cohere to that set of atoms there. Um, there's no, there's no reality to humanness. So I can declare based on some conditions or properties that I, I define, you know, for, for consequentialist utilitarian 
reasons of convenience that you're not a human being. That's right. And so I can end your life. You know, certainly the the you know the well-known large-scale industrialized examples of that happening in the 20th century, with you know evil dictators doing that uh, by people that they defined as being less than human. Uh, hmm. There's all kinds of ways we do that, um, and you know define incompletely developed humans as not human, um, or you know maybe inconvenient, incapacitated or old humans as well. You know, it's not like humanity really is a thing, so we can kill those people or those those biological states of affairs. Yeah, so it can change the way we draw the line between what is human and what isn't human. But then I'm even thinking of just my personal experience as a human. You know, you can almost see it even in a shift of like, okay, I sign up for a LinkedIn profile and I need to create my profile. And then I am my profile versus I'm just my Facebook feed. And so I'm all the things that I have ever posted on Facebook. And yeah, do those yeah. sequence of events define me? And then that, you know, if somebody reads my entire feed, have they gotten to know me? Is that who I am? Or does something that happened 10 years ago, what's the relationship between what happened 10 years ago and what happened a week ago to who I am as a core? I mean, it's complicated and complex, which is the beauty of humanity. But But we've created these ways to project ourselves to other people, to present ourselves to other people that are just sequences of events that have no explanation or, or identity or integrity or character behind them. They're just things that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And the, so that's a good point. Social media sort of encourages the, the nominalist account of other yeah. minds. Um, you are a stream of tweets, you are a stream of Facebook updates. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody knows that that's curated, you know, your Instagram posts are designed to show your life pictorially the way you want it to be shown. Like, nobody's surprised that it's curated, but um, it is just this stream of of sense impressions, which is a lot more like Quine's account of the world than, uh, you know, say, like Popper, like a 20th century realist or, or um, Aquinas, a, a good old-fashioned medieval realist, who would say, no, there's a person there, and it's that person that is the actual object that exists. And this is just a curated view. You know, realism is reminding you that that stream of updates is just a curated view. And um, nominalism is saying, well, you know, maybe it's a badly filtered view, but what else is there? Well, and the other thing it does is it, it doesn't just, it's not just curated in terms, in terms of the types of content. So certainly I'm gonna post, you know, a picture of me skiing on Facebook, but I'm not going to post a picture of me yelling at my wife. So it's the, the kinds of things. But then also, you know, if I go skiing and I post a picture of myself on the top of a mountain and you go skiing and you go to the same mountain and post a picture of yourself at the top of the same mountain, those events are identical, but I'm ex there's a whole, I'm experiencing that event in a very unique way because of my background and who I am and who I'm with and what I had for lunch and how I feel about the people I'm with and how they feel about me. and you're experiencing it in a very different way. So if all we are is events, then we, we lose our distinctiveness too, because if the same things happen, then they're, they mean the same thing, but they don't. The, the picture of me skiing and the picture of you skiing, while it might be the same thing, are actually very different yeah. experienced events. Yeah. But I don't think, but that's one of the things I think people feel the dissatisfaction with with the way that we 
have have chosen to portray ourselves online is that all of that complexity gets lost and it's just a me on top of a picture of a mountain and people feel this way when they're skiing so i must feel that way because i'm skiing and right so i must right. be happy and i must be enjoying it and i must love the outdoors and i must be a little bit cold but i must be basically okay and you know yeah none of which may be of, true none of which may be true and yeah. some of which may you know who knows but it's right. just a picture it's just an event and i can't i can't stress enough that like the the underlying uh abstraction that I think is emerging for dealing with data, it, it can still be a super good one. And I think it is, sure. right? Yeah. It's not like, oh, no, this might lead to nominalism. So let's use Postgres right. for everything. Let's pull the plug. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It's, it's not like that at all. It's just I've kind of reflected on the fact that this goes with the grain of the nominalist spirit of the philosophical age. Um, and, you know, one one ought to stop and think about that and think, huh, could this encourage me to think that way? And also realized all of the ways in which, uh, you know, the the intuitive and obvious and uh, resistless reality of objects in the world still assert themselves in that event streaming framework. Like, it, yeah. it, you still need to know what's out there. And there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem because you made the suggestion that this new framework is very good at solving the kinds of problems that we're trying to solve, but why are we solving the kinds of problems we're trying to solve? Why are we trying to optimize a mobile device in my pocket that lets me know the instant my package leaves the warehouse? Why, you know, and so are we trying to solve problems that exist because we already think this way? So then this technology is really good at solving those kinds of problems or is technology changing us or is it some combination of the two, which is probably the the best conclusion. Right. And absolutely that, uh, you know, these are these are mutually reinforcing things, and you know the revolution in mobile devices uh, will the, the genie is not going back in the bottle. Those are going to stay. You know, I'm going to keep one in my pocket, and I'm going to keep yes. buying a new one every two or three years, and that's probably what it's going to be like uh, until I die. And um, I'm fine with that. But the the fact that those notifications will be with me for the rest of my life is, is probably just how things are, and how um you know people like me who who are, who are following a vocation of software development we're going to have to use systems that recognize that fact and uh make it easier for us to take dominion over our little part of software creation uh in the most effective way we can right let me let me bridge to another topic on data that i've been thinking about and get your take on it and this kind of obsession we have with data and the amount of data that we're collecting as people, whether it's videos or pictures or things that we're creating. And, and one of the things I think that technology is forcing us to consider is what that has to do with the realism, nominalism issue. What is real and what is virtual and what, what really exists. And, um, and it's, I think we're 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 pushing ourselves to the point where unless it's recorded, unless it's data, unless we store it, then it didn't happen. And the the clearest way I feel this is, you know, I picked up running and I use a running app, but if my running app crashes in the middle of my run and that run didn't get recorded, it didn't happen. Right. It it, it doesn't count. I mean, if it's not on Strava, it I may as well not have run. Which right. 
I mean, I actually 100% feel that way. And I'm slightly ashamed to admit it, but that's the truth. But how did we get there? And what does that say about why are we so data driven? And, and you know, from a Christian perspective, I could ask, why isn't it enough that God knows that I ran this morning? Why does Strava need to know and all of my followers on Strava and et cetera? What, have we lost some comfort in the fact that God knows us? Right. That we need to have us recorded. Us recorded and shared. Seen. Shared, yes. Right, because it's not that this is being synced to some fault-tolerant, store. You know, geographically right. replicated store, object store in the cloud. Uh, it's your friends can see it. Um, and that's not... Um, you know that that's not a new idol that social media has brought into existence, and I'll I'll call that running app. You know, it's certainly a form of social media if you can if you can friend people. Right. It's uh, I'm not a runner, so I I don't I don't know how these apps work, but um, yeah. It, it did the did the dinner happen if it didn't make it onto my Instagram story? I mean that's that's kind of a pressing question for me. Yeah. And I want to. It's, it's as if I want to perform my life. Uh, for an audience it. yeah so i want to let me dump on that with you and then i actually do want to come back and uh and defend that a little bit at least at least try to pick something in it that is that is redeemable redeemable yeah yeah um <clears throat> but yeah the the desire to be thought well of and to be approved of by other people is not fundamentally wicked um, or new for know, that matter or new no it's it's definitely not new and it's 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 I, I i don't want us to think that that's necessarily evil uh that that wanting approval is uh making an idol of approval um i mean the requirements for eldership biblically are uh, one of them is to be thought of well by outsiders so, you know, I've got a few thousand Twitter followers, so I'm in. Sure. You know, but it's, okay, it's a little little more complicated than that. But I mean, that little bit. that is in a sense, uh, I, I need to be approved of right. by people. So this, this is not an evil thing, but um, to drive significance, comfort, identity from uh, having my actions stored and seen online and approved of and getting likes and hearts and things, um, you know, clearly that's that's the idol, needing the approval, not feeling significant. I posted to Facebook, and I only got six likes. What's wrong with me? Right. Um, that's the problem. Because in a sense, not only is, is being approved of by outsiders uh, on the face of it an okay thing, but uh, like I'm a Instagram user, uh, love the story feature. Um, and I'm kind of professionally, I'm not a software developer anymore. I, I run a developer relations team and I work as a developer advocate. I do a lot of public speaking and I make a lot of videos. There's a sense in which my profession is performance. Right. Uh, that That is this like the calling I am following during this season of my life. And so the desire to perform and to engage other image bearers and make people laugh or make people think through you know recording a curated video where you've thought out the words you're going to say and you say something funny or insightful or whatever and like you want people to listen to that 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 by itself is not an evil thing 
that's a great desire good thing yeah yeah needing it for for it not to be enough simply to know that you know the father approves of the thing that i did uh because i've done it in faith in the name of the lord jesus you know that's that's the that's the fundamental christian assertion there and that's where i go for my identity right uh needing the likes on the social media artifact and feeling as if i've lost my identity without them well you know that's the that's the problem but engaging the medium not a problem not in itself sure and that's that question about technology i think how does it change my view of myself that there's this new way of doing that and that then reflects back on my self-understanding right right and um i think this i think social media just magnifies this particular problem um i am doing things and i want the approval of people around me i want connection to people around me because that's how god made me and i I think that's a, a very defensible idea that the idea of connection between persons is in the christian faith ultimate um, it's implied in the Trinity. There, there have been persons who have been connected uh, for all eternity. And now when God makes the contingent material world and his contingent human creatures, he makes them as people who want to be connected. And so that desire to be connected is, is built into the very fabric of reality and a holy thing. And built into the fabric uh, of humanity. That's who we are. It is who we are. And now we have apps on our phones that help us do that. And so it, it just brings into relief the various things that can go wrong in seeking connection. Gives me more opportunity to, to corrupt connection uh, through sin. Right, yeah. As if there weren't enough opportunities already. <laughs> seems, seems like I have enough of those. Yeah. Well, there's two questions I'd like to ask um, everybody I have a conversation with. One of them is what makes you most excited as you think about technology, where it's taking the world, think about your family, yourself. What what are you excited about for the possibilities that technology offers? Ways of, of communicating. I think it's just, it's made the cost of communicating uh, so much radically lower um, and I think that's a good thing, honestly. Like I, I can go to the grocery store and text my wife and say, would cornbread muffins fit the bill? Um, you know, it, it used to be hard to do that uh, when I first got married. Right. I would have had to buy the muffins and take a chance and go home. You know, that's, that's not bad. Uh, silly little thing, but, um, that's, that's actually good or, um, I was in a different city from my wife and I were in across the country from her sister two days ago on her sister's birthday and we FaceTimed and, you know, it's just hard to hate that. Um, I really love the, the kinds of communication, low cost communication possibilities that we've got. I think that's, um, just in terms of what actually affects my life on a daily basis, it's communicating. And that connects with who we are as people, as humans as well. If if connection is core to who we are, then communicating is the way we connect. And so we have all sorts of new 
means of connecting and means of communicating. And like you say, I love that phrase that lowers the cost of communication. That yeah, yeah, we, we are easier. embodied. Yeah, we are embodied souls. We are fundamentally physical, um, in addition to being fundamentally spiritual. Uh, and to communicate, we we need material means. We need a right. mouth and ears that that work, or a keyboard and you know something. Uh, and we've got all these things that that extend that mouth and ears and eyes uh, in in ways that uh, just weren't possible. And that's uh, bordering on uh, on cliche. It's so obvious, but it's worth pointing out that this is a fundamental part of who we are, who God has made us to be as him, his image bearers. And it's worth pointing yeah, out that technology helps that. Like I, the definition I use for technology is something that extends our natural, something we create that extends our natural capabilities. And so we have these natural capabilities for communication, but technology extends that. And it's yeah, insightful yeah. to say that if we're naturally, inherently spiritual beings, we, we can't communicate on that level. We, if we're spiritual and material, that all the communication happens on the material level. And maybe we can, we can feel close to one another spiritually, but whatever intimacy we've gained on a spiritual level happened through the material medium. So there is this sense that it has to be mediated by something. I, I think that's a great yes. observation. Yes. And we have come up with new media. That's right. So the corollary to that first question then is, as you think about the future, what scares you about where technology might take us, either personally or globally, as in terms of humanity? Yeah, well, um, it, uh, it it now now that you know it's it's so much cheaper to communicate through these these new media, you know, media that aren't the air, <laughs> right? My, my my vocal cords and your eardrums and the air, uh, there are all of these other media. Um, those those media tend to be centralizable, and monitorable and controllable, and there are certainly geographies on planet Earth where, um, you know, people have access to the same devices they can put in their pocket, all the same kinds of tools, and there's a government that. Uh, that listens to everything right. and that government may be deeply hostile to the Christian faith. And so, mm. um, as you have, you know, any, any, uh, any state, any, you know, company that's big enough to kind of fill in and sort of act like a little, little mini, uh, vassal state sort of thing. Um, once our communications are mediated electronically, they're much more controllable and monitorable. Um, and yeah, that's, that's always a, a problem. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's just kind of like bad civic hygiene for everybody. Sure. That's not a uniquely Christian concern. Um, but Christians should think about that, that, you know, this is now a thing. And, um, you know, sometimes there, and in some places, there are governments that think Christianity is a great idea or a neutral idea. And then sometimes in some places, uh, there aren't. And uh, so that's a real risk. So on a general level, it's just who knows besides you and your wife that you're texting about cornbread and do you really want them to yeah. know that? But then on a more specifically Christian level, what what does that information do to entities that might be hostile? 
Yeah, yeah. Thing. And the say, like cornbread, I'll put that on my Instagram story. Like I want to perform the cornbread question. I was in a hurry and I was tired. I just traveled all day, so I didn't do it. But like that's fun right. to broadcast. But there's things that aren't. Sure. And things that everybody wants to keep a secret and uh, or at least wants to have control over who knows them. And we give up a lot of that control yeah. when um, we use electronic media. It's a great... It's a great observation and something I think to be concerned about. One of the areas that's talked about a lot lately is privacy. And I think it's occurred to me, and we don't have time to dive into it now, but what should there be a Christian ethic of digital privacy and what should it be and how do we even get there? The, the world is wrestling with that, but are there Christian ideas that inform that, that ethic? Right. No, I'm, I'm sure we could uh, come up with some boundaries there. That's always the kind of thing where, you know, we want to be a little loose with what we consider the orthodox answer, but uh, we could definitely draw on biblical principles right. and uh, ideas from the Christian intellectual tradition to come up with something. That's right. Well, thanks, Tim. I really appreciate the conversation and talking through lots of big themes. A pleasure to be on your show, sir. Thanks. Thank you for listening to allthingsnew.tech. We hope you continue the conversation by subscribing to our blog at allthingsnew.tech. We have a variety of authors working together to develop a biblical framework for engaging with technology. Check it out. Join the conversation.